Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, turn our attention to our, our panelists. And um, I would like to start by uh, introducing Lisa Purdy. She's the senior partner in national healthcare practice at Deloitte Canada. Lisa is a senior partner in consulting, bringing her expertise specifically to the life sciences in healthcare practice. She brings extensive experience delivering strategy, governance, operations, and digital solutions to individual, regional, and provincial health organizations. Her deep understanding of health system issues includes sustainability levers, service provider operations, alternative service delivery models, technology enablement opportunities, and overarching system transformation considerations. I've had the pleasure to work with Lisa on a few occasions, and I'm very pleased to introduce her this morning. Lisa, the floor is yours. Good morning, Bernard, and thanks so much for the introduction. And I'm so glad, Dr. Alessia, you were able to join us today. It's so refreshing as we are all so focused on the immediacy of pressures of today to just step back and listen and sort of reflect on the learnings. And a lot of what you said around uh, the previous dynamics of the health of the population and the health of our healthcare systems and those previous issues we had, the learnings we've had through the, through the pandemic and the work ahead absolutely apply in Canada. So if we could, let's take a little bit of a Canadian context and a lot of what you said, Dr. Alessia, just bring it into the, the situational uh, reality that we have in Canada. And so Matt, if we wanna start with the slides, uh, looks like they're coming up on screen. That's fantastic. Great. Thanks so much. So, you know, part of this is um, I'm going to step back even from our citizens and from healthcare and talk a little bit about the economy and the situation we find ourselves in Canada, because there's a critical uh, linkage there between the two. And so if we move to the first slide, we've done some work to look ahead to 2030. And with every great uh, economics analysis, of which I am not an, econ an economics uh, expert by any means, it's really important to look at past trends and then the projection forward. And what we see clearly in Canada is that previous to the pandemic, we were not in a great place economically. Um, and so while we might have felt we were doing strong, um, we really felt that we, uh, we were in a position where some of our economic challenges in terms of the pace of economic growth and the trajectory we were on, we're actually not heading in a good place. Then we have COVID, we have significant change in the revenue base of the country, as well as a significant shift in expenditures. Um, and so what we found there is, uh, obviously we've had a significant dive. And I think Matt, if you could put it into presentation mode, people may be able to see it a little bit bigger, which would be great. Um, and so, you know, we have this pre-existing condition in our economy and we have to take note of it as we think about how we come through this pandemic and what it means uh, economically. And so uh, we also had uh, sort of the preconditions of our real GDP growth and not strength there. And so as we think about that and then we look forward, we need to look forward what that means in terms of expenditure capacity in the country. Um, when we already had a high expenditure base for healthcare, and yet economically we weren't on a good footing, we're going to continue to need to spend in healthcare, and we're going to continue to have economic pressures. So let's take a look at the next slide, um, because it reinforces some of what Dr. Alessia was saying, which is the importance of remembering that our pre-existing health conditions, if you will, not of individuals, but of our economy and our system, we still have the aging demographics. We still have a high proportion of healthcare costs as age rise as as we rise in age, and so you think about slowing of GDP growth. 
and you think about this pressure and the pressure we have always felt in healthcare of the dynamic between resource availability and fulfilling the needs of citizens, that pressure is going to intensify. And so as we think about that fiscal strain, we need to think about some of the choices we can make to actually have an impact on it. And so in the next slide, we talk about really three levers. And this really, these levers, um, as we look at them in the next slide, are about the economy writ large. They're not about healthcare. But when we look at them, um, if we just move forward, Matt, um, when we look at them, we see that there's a direct connection between these levers and the broader economy and what we need to be starting to think about in health. And that's why I raised the economy and started setting the context from a Canadian perspective. So Canada can be more prosperous going forward from an economic perspective. We have choices as a country to make to change that trajectory that you see in terms of the gap between what we need from an expenditure base and what we're really able to produce in G GDP. Um, and there's a couple of areas to focus. One is in labor markets, one is investment spending, and one is in productivity of performance. And as we look at those, these again are all generic across all sectors in the country. In the labor markets, we need to boost labor market participation for women. We need to look at the role of older Canadians in the labor market. We need to look at the uh, number of immigrants coming into the country and how we embrace them into the labor market. And we have to improve labor market outcomes for Indigenous populations. When you think about those, you could replace the word Canada and the economy with healthcare. We need to look at the role of women in healthcare. We need to find ways in which to make it sustainable employment, particularly when you look outside the hospital and how do we protect those groups. Um, when you look at investment spending, similarly, we um, need to look at investment spending in, in Canada and healthcare going forward, but we need to match it relative to where we're going to get outcomes. And we've been poor in that in healthcare in years gone by. And so that value equation needs to get stronger. And productivity performance. And what I would simply say here is what COVID taught us is we can change the way we work, but we also need to change the work and we need to change the workforce. And unless we change all three of those, we don't get real sustainable productivity gains. Just shifting to an online visit versus in-person, but not changing the nature of a way we deliver care, changing the workforce, and changing how we support individuals simply means we replace the transactional cost. And that's not a sustainable productivity improvement. If we go forward, we all know there's a complex web of reality in healthcare. This pre-existed um, any transformation we might wanna look at in the future. All of these dynamics are at play, the role of technology, the role of financial levers that Dr. Alessi spoke to, the important role of citizen engagement, the important role of care management, all of these are in play. We had a complex web before. When we're talking about shaping the next reality and next era of healthcare in the country, we need to know we can't just press on one of these levers. And I know we're gonna talk a lot today about care outside the hospital and that's critically important, but as we do it, it isn't simply about a digital medium. It isn't simply about shifting a setting. It is about looking at the complex web, trying to simplify that web and make the shift. Two other quick points I'll make, one on the next slide. Uh, related to virtual uh, visits. So I'm sure many of us will talk about different statistics we'll hear over the course of reflecting on our experience over the last year in the pandemic. One of them is going to be about the uptake in virtual. And you know what? We shouldn't be surprised that when you 
fully shut a door on something, Canadians find another door to open. We've certainly seen that uh, in terms of virtual visits uptake. Seven in 10 Canadians who sought medical assistance during this pandemic have reported they had a virtual visit and a high degree of satisfaction. Deloitte actually did some survey work with citizens pre-pandemic, not knowing what was going to happen. And the level of satisfaction, we had a much smaller percentage who'd experienced virtual care. Those who had experienced, we had a very low satisfaction rate. And part of the satisfaction rate that was so low was because they found providers hadn't really shifted the way they engaged with them. They just turned on a virtual visit. During COVID response, providers all had to make a change. And we, quite frankly, we had to learn website manner as much as bedside manner from a clinical perspective. But as we look forward, we know that just replacing the visit isn't actually virtual care. Care, as Bernard, Bernard said, you said in your introductory, is an action. It's an ongoing relationship. And so we have to look at the gap between that quick escalation we had from the previous path we were on and say, what's really the addressable market to think differently about how it is we manage care going forward? And I'll leave you on the last slide with a couple of things to think about. As we think about shifting um, uh, more care outside the hospital, let's think about some of the orthodoxies we've broken and maybe where there are more to break. So one orthodoxy was really we had historically was around patient and physician or patient and clinician interaction must incur virtual incur in person to be effective. Sure, we had telemedicine capability, but it was really seen as a second standard when in person wasn't viable. We've broken that down. But as we've broken it down, we've learned from it. And so we need to keep learning to know when is the best balance uh, of approaches to care as we move more and more outside the hospital. We've broken another orthodoxy around how we think about individuals. We've, many people have said that older adults would struggle um, as we moved to different experiences in care delivery. And actually, when we do it well and we support them, they're quite adaptable. The challenge is, can we as a health system support them effectively? And when you move care outside the hospital, you absolutely are much more thoughtful about the kinds of processes and systems in place to support people effectively. And so I think there's a lot of learning to be had there. The other orthodoxy is around the financial reimbursement of our environment and how do we make um, it financially feasible to care for people at, at, in the comfort of their home. We've seen that we can make shifts on that front too, but we've also done it on a temporary basis. And so we haven't looked at the holistic financial envelope. We've tried to squeeze the balloon in another spot. And the last piece is really around the importance of high quality care. And that um, people thinking about that as being very much associated with facility-based care where the entire support environment is controlled. And we know that that's not the case. And so as we move more and more outside the hospital, we need to be thinking about breaking down the boundaries and all layers of our thinking, not just the setting. So I'll leave that with you, Bernard, as we uh, continue the dialogue. Thank you very much, Lisa, and I, I really appreciate the, uh, the highlight you bring on the economic challenge that we face and the impact that that will have on, on healthcare. But I also appreciate the fact you identify some choices that we have and some findings. And you know, the, the one thing that you mentioned, the, the fact that older adults in Canada are adaptable and we're far more resilient, uh, all of us, um, all generations than perhaps we, we believe we were and people are ready for, for change. So thank you for that. We'll get back to that conversation in a second. Now I'd like to uh, introduce Chris Wilson. 
Uh, Chris is Senior Vice President, Home Health Eastern Canada, CBI Health Group. Chris is the Senior Vice President, Home Health, uh, as I mentioned, the largest community-based healthcare provider in Canada. She began her career as a home visiting occupational therapist and has been working in the sector for 30 years in increasingly senior roles. Chris has worked within both the private and public sectors, joining CBI Health in 2016 as a senior director and taking on the vice president role in 2018. She has accountability for an extensive range of services across much of Ontario and in the greater Halifax region, supporting thousands of staff to provide care every single day. Chris is a highly involved in healthcare transformation in Ontario, supporting a business that is affiliated with 33 developing Ontario health teams. Uh, as chair of the board of Home Care Ontario, she has seen a, tr uh, a trusted advisor and thought leader in the sector, providing input to the Ministry of Health uh, in Ontario, as well as on the critical role that healthcare plays in supporting other parts of the healthcare sector. Sorry, that's home care plays in supporting other parts of the healthcare sector. So Chris, over to you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Bernard. I, um, just one second. I assume that if there's any issue with uh, the uh, presentation, someone will, uh, will let me know. Uh, so uh, hello everyone and uh, welcome to my home office. I am uh, delighted to be here uh, speaking with you today, uh, specifically about home care. And, you know, as I was finalizing uh, my presentation for today, I came across an article published by the CBC last week, written by Dr. Elizabeth Nidra. Of home care, she wrote, it's often viewed culturally as an old-fashioned and folksy form of medicine, or else a fantasy approach outside the reaches of possibility for standard clinic-anchored care teams. She concluded we must rewrite our healthcare culture to sustainably invest in older people. When I read her article, and I, I've included the link here, I, I knew I was on the right track uh, with the subject of this presentation. You know, with a sometimes outdated view of home care, today's healthcare system can be prescriptive and limiting when it comes to leveraging what home healthcare can deliver. As we move beyond the pandemic and design a sustainable health system for the future, we need to be precise in our efforts to strategically place bets to support a vibrant, modernized home health care sector. This presentation is meant to provide really practical questions to consider for those who are involved in designing, evaluating, or delivering integrated home health care programs. So where to place our bets? In the next few minutes, I'll highlight five key areas that can help unlock the potential of what home healthcare can offer. I continue to be surprised when some healthcare partners are surprised when they realize what kind of healthcare is being delivered by home care professionals. Nurses manage trachs and vents, drains, dialysis, complex wound care, and pumps, in addition to providing teaching for self-management. They're typically available by phone or in person 24-7. Occupational therapists provide in-depth cognitive assessments, complex seating and mobility recommendations. Physios address pain, provide cardiac and respiratory programming, and implement programs that achieve sustainable 
functional gains, even with complex debilitated seniors. Social workers help individuals and families manage complex dynamics in the home and facilitate connections to support access to the social determinants of health. And healthcare workers providing personal care can work to the full extent of their training in the home environment. They help deliver restorative programming and contribute to goal setting. They're also available around the clock. The scope of what can be provided in the home often leveraging technology as an enabler is remarkable, but to be truly modernized, these professionals and others require a clear mandate to meet outcomes at the patient, family, and system level that are sustainable. Today, there are some examples of promising interprofessional programs being delivered in Ontario under new high-intensity funding that are supporting frail, complex seniors to make functional gains following an extended hospital stay. And patients and families are loving being engaged in setting and achieving those goals. We need to learn from and build on scalable examples like these. So the practical questions, are we making use of the full scope of available resources? And do we understand what integrated models of care can scale to achieve sustained outcomes with system impact? What does the right access look like in a transformed health system? It's no longer enough to simply provide timely access to care once an event has occurred, like a fall or an admission to acute care. As you've heard already today, other jurisdictions like Australia, Denmark provide access to services and supports to prevent the need for more costly care or a move to a long-term care setting. Home healthcare has the potential to provide education, support and intervention as part of a continuous system without barriers. For example, between home care and primary care, acute care or community paramedicine. And what does the right kind of care look like? Those of, those of us who work in home health care are very much aware firsthand of the impact of access to the social determinants of health on the success of our patients in staying safe at home. To modernize the delivery of home health care, we need to have a mandate that goes beyond referring and handing off to the social care system. More needs to be done to ensure patients and their caregivers are actively supported to make decisions, to understand what they're eligible for, and to make use of resources available to them. As we redesign care coordination and navigation functions within new models, we must consider what patients and families really need at an individual level. So the questions to be asked would be, what needs to be done to move the emphasis of care upstream? And can we remove barriers to making that happen? Are we doing enough to closely connect health and social care at a program and patient level? We'll come out of this pandemic into a time of even more severe financial constraints as we've heard. Promising models must be carefully examined to ensure that the investment made is commensurate with expected outcomes, both qualitative and financial. This means taking the long view, a population health view, to determine what investments can achieve sustained benefit at the patient and system level. The creation of the Ontario Health Team model in Ontario sets the stage for stakeholders, including patients and families, to make decisions about how communities want their most vulnerable to be cared for and where. This may mean developing a business case for a shift in funding to invest in programs like in the UK, where a reablement model of care has demonstrated that commitment and achieved system level impact. 
And comparisons need to be meaningful in determining the why to invest. Comparing new home healthcare models to institution-based care can be a compelling exercise, but we need to carefully evaluate the framework of comparison to ensure apples are being compared to apples. For example, home healthcare models of care should be compared not just to institution-based care, but to other home care models, costs and benefits in order to really evaluate economic impact. At the end of the day, what we need are value-based funding models that provide the right incentives to drive outcomes and innovation in care with patients and families in the driver's seat when it comes to designing what they want. Transaction-based siloed funding stifles innovation and integration. For this reason, block or bundled funding models that cross settings to support a personalized approach to care can be effective mechanisms to both manage costs and to support flexibility. So let's make sure, are we comparing apples to apples? And have we, can we offer a flexible funding model that incentivizes delivery of value broadly? We need tens of thousands of health workers across Canada to meet the existing and growing demand. And we need them to know about home health care as a career choice. While some schools and training programs have made a commitment to teach students about health care delivered in the home, much more needs to be done to drive those looking for careers to home health care. We need students and also healthcare professionals coming to Canada to understand the potential to practice to full scope as part of a flexible connected healthcare team. At the same time, we need those working in home health care and considering it as a career to see a, in a practical sense that their work in people's homes is as valued as in other sectors. Much has been said about the disparity in compensation between parts of the healthcare system. And until funding helps to level that playing field, the home healthcare sector will be compromised in its efforts to bring people home and keep them there where they wanna be. As investments are made in various parts of the health system, decision makers need to be mindful of overall health human resource capacity and to be held accountable for consequences that result from choices being made that may disproportionately disadvantage any one part of the health system. So are we working across parts of the healthcare system to create a health human resource capacity plan? And are we making the right level of investment to support value for home healthcare workers? If people who work in healthcare are not sure how home care works, patients and families have even less knowledge about what's available and how to access the services they need. Most importantly, people need information geared to their needs, including what they're eligible for and they need help to make decisions about care. Navigation should be a hands-on service going beyond warm handoffs to ensure that patients and families know how to access care and have assistance to take the next steps to get it. Those who interact with home health care, such as primary care, acute care, and community organizations, ask questions. Stakeholders may be surprised to learn what can be delivered in the home, in person or virtually, proactively, or following an event. So questions. Are we creating a model where it's easy for clients and families to understand what's available and how to access it? Are we doing all we can to support their decision-making about their health and social care? Do we know enough about what home health care can offer or should we ask more questions? 
As we move through this pandemic and beyond, healthcare delivered in the home is proving to be the key to demonstrating our support to our most vulnerable, to help them live and thrive where they want to be. These elements are some starting points for building out a home healthcare sector that can truly deliver on that commitment. Thank you very much, Chris. And it's, uh, it was really inspiring to hear you speak of the transformational impact of home healthcare. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, as you say, it's, it's a sector that may be misunderstood in healthcare in Canada. And I, I think it's one that we need to, uh, to explore more. Uh, the concept of value-based healthcare as well could have a large impact and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that uh, later today. And thank you for listing the elements that we, uh, we need to make that a reality. Uh, now I'd like to invite our, our next panelist, uh, Dr. Sarah Newberry. Um, Sarah completed medical school at McMaster University and completed postgraduate family medicine training in Thunder Bay through the Northern Ontario Medical Program. A fellow at both the CFPC and the, CFC, the SRPC, Dr. Newbury has been a rural physician in comprehensive community practice in Marathon since 1996 and is currently the chief of staff of the North of Superior Healthcare Group. She is a past board member of the Ontario College of Phys Family Physicians and is also a past president of that organization. Most recently, she was the VP clinical for the Northwest Lynn and co-chair of the Northern Physician Resources Task Force. Dr. Newmery is also on several provincial health related committees and is chair of the OCFP's Rural Mentoring Network and Leadership in Primary Care Mentoring Network. She has been an active community teacher and faculty member at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine since its inception and has been involved in several of its curriculum committees. Uh, she believes strongly in equitable access to care for citizens of Canada's rural communities and loves the professional work of being a comprehensive family physician in rural practice. Thank you for being with us this morning. Dr. Newbery, the floor is yours. Thanks so much for that lovely introduction. I'm going to uh, start to share my screen now. And as I do, I want to uh, simply acknowledge the privilege that it is to join this group uh, for this presentation. And for me, I am joining you from the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek people, specifically the Ojibwe's of the Pick River and Big Tugong First Nation in the Robinson Superior Treaty area here in Northern Ontario. I wanted to share a little bit about my context. It's very different than Dr. Alessi's context in London. You'll, you'll see that we live here in Marathon in a very wilderness-like setting. There's a wilderness of forest and a wilderness of water, which is Lake Superior. And it is really my privilege to live and work in this context. I want to, uh, aside from acknowledging the land on which I find myself, I want to acknowledge all of the people that have informed my own thinking about primary care and primary care in a rural context in particular. And that includes my colleagues, my community, my patients, and many of the thought leaders in primary care from across the province and across the country, some of whom are on the call today, and it's really lovely to see your names in the chat. 
I wanted to give you a sense of, of our healthcare context here in Marathon, because I think it actually does represent well much of the healthcare context in many of the rural communities across Canada. In these images, you'll see in the top right, our local hospital, it's a 10 bed acute care hospital with 12 chronic care beds. We have an emergency department and obstetrical service, a physiotherapy unit, and a variety of other sort of typical general hospital based services. I'm sorry about that. In the bottom left is our seniors supportive housing complex and it's a 36 unit senior supportive uh, housing setting, which is about hundred meters from our hospital. The bottom right is our clinic setting. It also is about 100 meters from our hospital. Really, we share the same parking lot. And our clinic is on the top floor. It's where our family health team works. On the bottom floor is our public library. And on the right side of the bottom floor actually currently is our COVID assessment center. Very closely connected to our primary care setting and functioning fully as an assessment center, not simply a swabbing center, but a place where people with all symptoms of COVID and those who screen positive can be assessed by one of our local family physicians. One of the things that's been profoundly helpful about an integrated care setting here is the fact that we have a shared EMR. So when somebody goes to the assessment center, they're seeing one of our local physicians and our local physicians, of course, have full access to the EMR, which provides us with the kind of information continuity that enables good care. I want to say as well, from the standpoint of integrated care, that our setting, uh, like most rural settings, really provides a full basket of comprehensive services. We have a family health team. It's a small family health team. But interestingly here, our nursing staff who work within the family health team are also contracted by home and community care and they do much of our home and community care service using our EMR, working in close relationship with our family physicians locally. We have a small addictions clinic here and we also provide satellite services to the indigenous communities that are neighboring communities to Marathon and the opportunity to work in this integrated care context has been really profoundly helpful during COVID-19. One of the ways in which it's been most helpful actually has been through the health promotion committee of our family health team, which has taken responsibility for all of the communications around COVID-19 for the whole of the area that we serve. And so while our health unit produces high level numbers about COVID cases, we have actually been able to provide uh, numbers for our community specifically, and to use all of the communications tools that we have available, including our local newspaper, our FM radio station, and social media to provide uniform, clear, uh, well-informed messages to the community. And that integration around our entire health system has been really very helpful. We are trying to function as a patient medical home and the patient medical home, I think will not be a new concept to many of you. It really is a concept that has been around for several decades in the US introduced to Canada in 2010 or 2011. But the patient medical home is a vision for what primary care can be. And it includes elements you'll see across the bottom, the foundational elements of appropriate infrastructure, appropriate uh, funding and administration and connected 
care. And when we think about how COVID-19 emerged in the spring, one of the profound issues for primary care was the lack of infrastructure to access personal protective equipment and infection control and prevention um, uh, tools. So we can understand that primary care, when it's not connected to appropriate infrastructure resources, struggles to provide, uh, to meet the needs of the communities that we are working hard to serve. There are those foundational elements that I've just mentioned, but importantly are the five functional elements that you see in the middle of the patient medical home. And those are the elements that have been demonstrated to make a difference to the health system through primary care. So in all of the jurisdictions in the world where primary care functions with those foundational elements, the healthcare system is generally much higher performing than it is in jurisdictions where those elements don't exist. So those elements really are timely access to care, to patient and family-centered care, provided in continuity of relationship with a provider and a team ideally with leadership from a family physician or a nurse practitioner, and, and in a context in which a comprehensive basket of services can be provided to meet the needs of the population that that practice is working to serve. Really fundamentally important is the notion of community adaptiveness and social accountability. And this is something that we haven't talked a lot about in primary care, but that we have seen absolutely through COVID-19. So the ability of primary care to adapt to an emerging issue like COVID-19, to respond to the needs of the community, to pivot to doing virtual home visits, to supporting long-term care, to working in assessment centers, to adapting the way that we work in the clinic in order to be able to continue to optimize the care that's delivered. That community adaptiveness is really a response to the social accountability that primary care has to the communities that we serve. But if we only have the patient medical home in isolation, then primary care really remains an isolated siloed sector. What we need is the patient medical home to be connected to the patient medical neighborhood. And in a rural context, we've talked about this as a rural health hub of care. But in the context of the patient medical neighborhood, what we're talking about is the ability to connect patients to lab and x-ray services, community and social supports, mental health and addiction services, hospital supports, home and community care supports, and long-term care. But we need to think about that not only in terms of the way that primary care reaches out to support patients to access those services, but also the way in which those services need to respond to primary care. And probably the best example when I think about the, the um, hospital and community dichotomy is really the need for hospitals to provide things like uh, discharge summaries in a timely way. If we set an expectation that hospitals are going to drive down 30-day readmission rates, then we need to be sure that primary care can pick up the thread of care after a discharge from hospitals so that if hospitals are providing those discharge summaries, responding to primary care, enabling primary care to do the work that we can do in the community, then we can actually help patients to be able to stay out of hospital and we support the healthcare system to be as high performing a system as it can be. 
I wanted to share this slide with you, and it comes back to the points that Dr. Alessi and others have made about the burden of chronic illness and care in the community. This is uh, from an article. I've, I've provided the link for you there, and, and I think uh, Matt will post some resources in the chat afterwards. But ecology of healthcare is really a particular data methodology, which I won't pretend to fully understand, but is well described in this paper that helps us to understand where care is delivered. The most recent data that I could find was from 2015 for Canada. And it would be very interesting to look at that now with the virtual care components that are delivered. But essentially when we look at the ecology of healthcare, we know that in any given month, if we take uh, a po the population over the age of 15, in any given month of a thousand people over the age of 15, 580 of those people will report, 560, I'm sorry, will report having one diagnosed chronic condition. So that's more than 50% of the population with a diagnosed chronic condition. It's not just somebody saying, I have a sore knee and it's always sore and it's been sore for a long time, but somebody saying, indeed, I've been diagnosed with chronic osteoarthritis. So a diagnosed chronic condition. Of those 1,238 will have contact with a family physician in the community. 70 will have contact with another physician, typically a specialist. 32 will have contact with a nurse and only eight will have an overnight stay in the hospital. So importantly, I think we can also sort of flip that on its, on its head a little bit and recognize that of those thousand people, roughly 750 don't have any contact in a given month with the healthcare system at all. And half of those with chronic condition don't contact a family physician in an average month. But I do think that this understanding of the ecology of healthcare can help us to see the amount of care that is provided outside of the hospital every day and every month across Canada. The data in this um, article is broken down by province. So for those of you who um, have a particular interest in what your own province looks like, that data is available. Importantly though, when we think about chronic illness and, and the COVID context in particular, and this has been mentioned by others, so I won't dwell on this, but it's, it's just so profoundly important that we begin to have a much deeper conversation about who is delivering care in the community. Who are the right people with the right skills in the right settings who can deliver care in the right place at the right time and importantly to Lisa's point at the right cost because we know that if we rely on a family physician model entirely that's an expensive model of care and and will not necessarily provide the kinds of outcomes that we might hope team-based care can provide better outcomes, better patient satisfaction, and certainly at a better cost than, than our more traditional model of care in the community. I want to touch on just a couple of things about what COVID-19 has changed in terms of our thinking about the healthcare system. And some of these have been touched on by others as well. So certainly COVID-19 has shaken our complacency about many things that we've taken for granted prior to this, including things like virtual care and how it is delivered. The role of PSWs across the system, the place of long-term care, I think we are much less complacent about those um, points of care and those issues than we were prior to COVID-19. It certainly has shifted our focus to understanding uh, the urgency of enriching and supporting excellent healthcare in the community context. I think it's revealed the importance of relationships across, across the whole of the, the healthcare system and places that have done well managing COVID-19 often have a really rich foundation of relationships on which they've built their response to COVID-19 in meaningful ways. 
I think COVID-19 has helped us to understand the role of primary care as an integrator in the healthcare system. And we have certainly seen that as we've seen family physicians and nurse practitioners move into staffing assessment centers, step into long-term care, both those homes that were struggling, but also those homes that had need for timely access to vaccination. And it's been largely primary care providers in the community who have stepped into those additional roles and really helped to integrate across the system. And finally, I think COVID-19 has really catalyzed our understanding of the need to focus on populations, hyper-local populations like Marathon and large populations like urban populations that have a different kind of set of struggles than small rural populations do. The last thing I want to just touch on is, is the importance of vaccination and the role of primary care. And I think this is going to be a profoundly important thing if, we're, if we are going to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic uh, in a timely and safe way. And I'll just remind people that the World Health Organization identified vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 global health threats in 2019 prior to COVID-19. And they created this framework for understanding vaccine hesitancy. And it really includes three things, complacency, and that's complacency about the disease, convenience of access to the vaccine, and then confidence in vaccine. I don't think we'll have to worry so much about complacency. People are complacent about measles because we don't see it so much. I don't think people will be quite as complacent about COVID-19. But convenient access to vaccine is going to matter. And it's part of why we have conversations about, you know, the availability and accessibility of mass vaccination clinics as well as access to vaccines in pharmacies and, and primary care provider offices. But fundamentally what we hear over and over again is about confidence in the vaccine and particularly the new technologies and the importance of relationships. Because although to Dr. Alessi's point, we need good data, we need people who can translate that data to an individual context. And we know that where people have the opportunity to talk to a trusted healthcare provider with whom they have a relationship about why that vaccine matters for them in their individual context, the uptake of that vaccine is much greater. So there's a lot of work that we need to continue to do in primary care to support vaccination implementation all across this country and a really profoundly important role for primary care to support this as we move forward. I will stop there with my, with my thanks again. I'll turn it back to you, Bernard. Thank you very much, Dr. Newberry, and uh, thank you for your insights on, on the differences between urban care and, of course, rural, the rural reality that is faced in northern communities and different communities in, in Canada, but as well the opportunities that exist to improve that care. Um, your themes of you know, the right people, the right skills, the right place, the right time, the right cost, they resonate everywhere in Canada, not mm -hmm. just in, in rural communities. As well as uh, your last point, and I, hopefully I'll have a chance to come back to you with a question on this, on the, the importance of access to vaccines, but as well as the impact of vaccine hesitancy. And the question I'll have for you later, and you can get ready, is it, is it, just, is it just patients that are hesitant, but as well providers that could be hesitant uh, with regards to vaccines. But thank you very much for, for being with us. And we will have a, a Q&A session and a conversation. There is one question in the queue, and I'll get to that question after our next panelist. Uh, and our next panelist is uh, Eric Sandy. I know Eric very well. I have the pleasure of working with him virtually every day. 
Uh, Eric Sandy's career as uh, he, well, he is the president of Medivy Health Services. His career has spanned a variety of industries, including healthcare, financial services, energy, and communications. He has significant experience and expertise leading high growth technology and healthcare service companies across Canada, the US and international markets. Eric is the president of Medivy Health Services where he leads a team of healthcare professionals delivering out of hospital emergency medical services and home-based primary care across six Canadian provinces. Prior to this, Eric was vice president and general manager of home monitoring solutions for Philips Healthcare where he led a a technology and services team in North America, Europe, and Asia. He is a dedicated community leader. He has participated on numerous boards and currently sits on the board of the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. He is also the chair of the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia. And I can tell you, we're thrilled to have him as part of our team at Medivy. Eric, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Bernard, and <clears throat> excuse me, thank you to, uh, to, to Lisa and uh, Chris and Sarah and, of course, uh, uh, Charles for their insights earlier. You're going to hear a lot of alignment, I think, um, with uh, what's being discussed today. I'll just pull up my uh, screen here. Hold on a sec. So, so thank you. So what I want to talk about today is mobile integrated health um, and finding ways that we're improving healthcare in the community. So mobile integrated health or MIH as we refer to it, you know, those are models of, of integrated community care that leverage a team of clinicians. It's essentially a, a clinically or a clinician agnostic perspective on getting the right clinician uh, attached to the right access points um, working with our patients to make sure that both the patient experience is a superior one, but also, of course, uh, to make sure that the outcomes are, uh, are significantly better. We, uh, as Bernard mentioned earlier in the, uh, the introductions, our organization started, its roots are in paramedicine. We manage a number of provincial uh, EMS systems. But because we were able to find ways to leverage paramedics outside of emergency settings and, and uh, pioneers a lot of what's called community paramedicine, we found ourselves in the midst of a lot of uh, collaborative uh, healthcare teams. And we certainly saw that the future of community care was around those collaborative teams. So since our roots in EMS, we've added a number of different uh, functions in our organization. We manage uh, a large home care contract in another province in New, New Brunswick, where we have a thousand nurses and RTs and PTs and other allied health professionals. We run uh, 811 and 911 systems for uh, a number of provinces. We have a clinical training school. So we're now active in seven different provinces and have about 5,000 clinicians and support workers working in these uh, collaborative teams. And I want to talk through a few examples of what's going on with that uh, in our organization and in the community generally. So we've really seen a, a swift evolution, as other speakers have mentioned, where we've gone from, you know, in our organization in the past, where we really focused, focused on, on first response and working with physicians and, and principally being centered around the acute system to one where the community is so much more important in terms of uh, where the care takes place uh, uh, for the people that we serve. You know, we're now very enmeshed with chronic uh, diseases, managing medications, mental health is becoming a very big theme, of course, for everyone and particularly for us. And coordinating that care across the spectrum is, is a, an important function that we find that we're able to uh, leverage all of our medical triage and communication centers to make sure that we're able to get the right people to the right place in the right time. 
You know, again, mobile integrated health is very patient centered. We have an increasingly number of uh, patient advisors working on our processes and advising us not just on transportation issues, but on how they want to be cared for in the home. Um, you know, we were focused very much on uh, bringing uh, more points of access to those uh, individuals to be able to do that in a scalable fashion so that uh, we can address some of the cost issues that were talked about. Importantly, it's about leveraging current resources. Uh, we think like many that, you know, the healthcare budgets of various provinces and, and health authorities is sufficient. It's really around how we uh, redeploy those resources to get the, the best types of outcomes and experiences. Clearly the issues around virtual health and remote patient monitoring, uh, while they're not new, I've been working on remote patient monitoring for I guess about 15 years, um, but a lot of these have really accelerated, of course, during the pandemic, as explained by, uh, by the other panelists. So having those access points integrated into the face-to-face -face care delivery is really important in terms of thinking about how mobile health works. And then finally, the continuity of care and, and you know, integration with health records are so important. And when you break down the silos and you have the team-based approach to community care, you know, to be able to, to drop into a, a, a patient and understand what happened yesterday when uh, another clinician uh, showed up or to understand what happened in their earlier interaction with, with RPM or a virtual visit. So they don't have to explain over and over again exactly what their situation is to a team member. You know, it's so important that we show up and we have that full view of the patient. And we're seeing some progress in that that we can talk about a bit later. I just wanted to mention, uh, go through a couple of the uh, mobile integrated health models that we've been active in. Um, these really are, we find them uh, effective in urban environments, in rural environments, and increasingly in, in remote environments too. Uh, the first example there is a, a remote island community in Nova Scotia along in Briar Island, where we have a collaborative team of nurses and paramedics that work under medical direction of a local physician where we're able to uh, reduce the visits to the ED by uh, almost 25% by treating people uh, in their homes or at a local uh, primary clinic base. We've worked for many, many years in nursing homes and long-term care facilities, and we've been able to provide uh, bedside treatment to individuals who previously were going into EDs. We've reduced those ED visits uh, by over 80%. Um, so you can imagine, um, you know, the, the, the experience for the patient being able to have that, uh, that treatment right in their rooms instead of having to go to the hospital. And if they do have to go to the hospital for, let's say it's a broken wrist and you need an x-ray, you know, we can um, schedule that visit so they're in and out quickly and, and don't have to uh, worry about, uh, you know, long waits in the hospital itself. Um, we've also seen um, a lot of work recently in palliative care. Uh, so we have teams of paramedics and nurses that are now responding to uh, the health needs of palliative patients and providing bedside treatment. And here, you know, we avoided well over half of the traditional trips that were taking people back into the hospital. So you can imagine the quality of care and the, uh, the peace of mind brought to palliative patients and of course, importantly, their families when we don't have to transport them to the hospital um, and we can uh, help them right in their homes themselves. Another example I don't have up here are 
Uh, mobile clinics, we're increasingly involved in uh, building out mobile clinics. Um, we have run one for many years in inner city Saskatoon, and we're going to be deploying a number of others in that province where we're going to see collaborative teams of uh, nurses, paramedics, mental health workers, and dentists going out uh, in, the, in this particular case to Indigenous communities to provide uh, in-home and in-community care. So all of these are examples of where we've been able to break down silos and work in teams and make sure that we, you know, as, as mentioned, you know, uh, by Dr. Newbery and uh, Chris and others earlier, um, it, it's so important to understand the scope of these individuals and their professions so that we can make sure we have the right people practicing the top of their scope so we can make sure that the right clinicians there at the right time and of course the right cost as some people have emphasized um, so that's a really key element of what we're trying to accomplish here we've been able to see how mobile integrated health has been able to very quickly respond in the COVID environment um, because we have expertise in logistics and the mobile deployment of resources. We were very quickly, uh, health authorities and provinces turned to us and asked us to help uh, set up screening and testing programs. So we've done that in long-term care facilities, drive-throughs and uh, uh, in various communities. We've set up at farms and fish plants, working with migrant workers at border points to make sure that we have safe passage of people uh, across different provincial boundaries um, and in long-term care facilities themselves. We've also been asked to help with some surge capacity issues. So for example, uh, responding to outbreaks in long-term care homes, uh, Indigenous Services Canada has asked us to go to many northern communities in Ontario and Saskatchewan and Manitoba to work on uh, teams, integrated teams there, uh, typically led by, by uh, nurses and other members of the local community health team uh, to support primary care, not just doing the testing, although we're doing that, but also to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, that we can work on other health challenges that individuals have in those communities. In New Brunswick, uh, where we manage the extramural program in that province and have integrated that uh, with another, uh, with, with ambulance as well as with uh, 811, we were asked to manage uh, what they're calling prompt teams, a provincial rapid outbreak management teams that have managed all the outbreaks in adult residential facilities and long-term care. And those teams are essentially SWAT squads that are sitting, uh, waiting to get called. And they comprise, they're comprised of uh, physicians and nurses and paramedics and social workers and uh, personal care workers. And we're able to mobilize them very, very quickly and to manage outbreaks in, in that province and have been quite successful in doing so. And finally, system navigation. There's been a huge demand on our 811 systems uh, in order to provide advice on, on COVID and the pandemic to individuals and also to uh, assist with appointments at testing centers, uh, uh, to check on people who are in self-isolation. And of course, we're gonna be deeply involved with vaccinations and, and having those scheduled. So the, the, the value of having that particular uh, point of interface has been really, really evident to ourselves and to the, uh, the provinces that we're operating in. In the future with MIH, there are so many different places this can go. Uh, I just wanted to point out a few of them. You know, work with complex patients has really been something that's been very successful for us. Uh, we've been working on uh, discharging and or decanting patients from the hospital with complex issues and providing care in the home to make sure that we don't see readmissions and, and reduce the number of trips uh, to ERs. They've been very successful, typically seeing reductions in the 60, 70% range. 
I talked about linking into virtual health services. You know, there are going to be many situations where we want a, a care for a clinician that can be provided remotely through a virtual setting, but you also want somebody in the room face-to-face -face with the patient. So we're looking at many models. We're able to join those up together. Remote patient monitoring, I think, is going to really start to take off so we can understand how these complex patients, uh, how their uh, vital signs are, if they're decompensating, when we can intervene quickly and effectively, uh, and when we need to escalate, um, and mental health issues too. So we're very, very involved in mental health crisis issues. And, you know, again, those are teams uh, that are collaborative and mobile and can really uh, be very, very effective. Again, quite often in combination with, with a, a virtual access to care uh, as well. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what we've been doing in the province of New Brunswick because there we're uniquely set up with a contract for both the ambulance service as well as for home care and linked with 811. We've been able to integrate those into one organization. So through our logistics and communication medical triage centers, we're able to deploy a variety of a dozen different uh, community care clinicians into the home in an integrated fashion uh, and make sure that they have all the information on that particular case when they show up so that the patient feels that there's a true team dealing with them. Um, you know, they may see a paramedic one day, get a call from 811 the next and have an appointment with a nurse uh, uh, the day following. And so we've been very successful in that model and are quite excited by it. And, you know, we have had mentions of value-based healthcare earlier. This is a value-based uh, contract that we've got. So we're looking at uh, when we do get compensated, we have to show that we're building capacity in the community. We're reducing visits to EDs. We're getting more referrals from physicians into the system. We're managing costs effectively. So it's a really interesting case for us to learn around uh, value-based healthcare and how that can uh, change the system itself. And then finally, just on uh, key takeaways from, from what we've learned, we're really encouraged to see the momentum and the acceleration in mobile integrated health, particularly during the pandemic. You know, it's, it's, it's really lubricated progress as has been noted by, by many others earlier. You know, it's brought stability and continuity to the care of patients in uncertain times. And, you know, it's allowed us to build out these teams of allied health professionals to, to be collaborative, but also to understand how various digital tools and uh, uh, virtual channels and care, uh, access points of support are really important in tandem with face-to-face -face healthcare delivery. So I want to just end by thanking actually all the frontline workers and the support workers in our organization and all across the country that have made this happen. It's been a very challenging time, but I think at the same time, quite an exciting moment for, for community care. Um, so with that, uh, I'll turn it back to you, Bernard. Thank you very much, Eric. And, and thank you for uh, sharing with us the, the experience, the real life experience and practical experience of, in the evolution of uh, mobile integrated health and the impact it's having in several communities.